Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. (laughs) Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 17. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In this episode, I'll be performing four spine-chilling tales for you, all of them courtesy of Matt Demersky, an award-winning Ohio-based author of horror and science fiction who has been entertaining readers for over a decade. Matt was the winner of Reddit's No Sleep Best Multipart Story of 2012 for his Asylum series, as well as the forum's best story of 2017 and story of the month in January 2018. And in tonight's program, I'm confident you'll see why. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. Our first tale tonight from author Matt Demersky. We'll visit the cell blocks of a prison with its fair share of secrets and plenty of skeletons in its closet, or worse. 
Without further ado, I present to you an empty prison. A single day added on to my prison sentence meant the difference between a normal jail and the unending nightmare of Pimbina prison. I was supposed to get 364 days. That was a deal. But the judge didn't like my attitude, whatever the hell that meant. So he made it 365. Boom. One year was the minimum for prison. My lawyer made a stink and a half, but it didn't do any good. It's not his fault. In fact, he's the one who's going to release this statement to the press or leak it online if the Guardian Corrections Group, GCG, tries to get an injunction on us. People have to know what happened at Pembina Prison. I'm going to put it right out there, and I'll tell you that it was haunted. You think I'm joking, nuts, or lying? But you have no idea. Haunted prisons aren't anything like you imagine. Those places that advertise themselves and give people tours are sick jokes compared to the real thing. It got so bad that you can actually look up CGC's official filings for Chapter 11. That shit put them out of business on their very first prison. And right there on the briefs, using an early statute of North Dakota law from 1857 to file an insurance claim, it says, Site of Pembina Prison, confirmed by Governor's Office, and two notary publics witnessing in person to be afflicted by the supernatural such that continued business is impossible. It wasn't the first time the prison was closed for that reason either, but leeches kept buying it and reopening it, hoping to make a buck off the common man. And I was shoved into that hellhole without knowing the history even a single bit. Don't get me wrong, the building itself wasn't so bad, especially for something straight out of 1853. It was a big stone cube that was squat, heavy, and cramped, but way less sealed off than modern prisons. We could see a lot of the cells around us. There was only one main hallway per floor, and we were close enough to pass things between the bars and have some real human interaction. It could have been worse. There were five floors in capacity for 500 prisoners. When I first got there, I had a bunch of cellmates, and I heard that there were 2,000 guys locked up, and I believed it. But that soon changed. I didn't talk to anyone for the first three weeks. I'd never been to real prison before, and I was messed up over it. I didn't want to accept that I would be in that place, and stuck with three other guys for myself for an entire year. The whole prison seemed full of feral men. The bottom floor would start screaming and hollering and panicking in the middle of the night all at once. We were on the top floor, but we could hear the screams echoing through that open old layout like they were right there with us. I just thought the prisoners on the bottom floor were all nuts until the guards weren't there to wake us up the first day of my fourth week. When I woke up in my corner without some asshole guard banging on the bars of the cell, 
I finally had to talk. I asked one of my cellmates, Dante, what was going on. And I'll never forget the fear in his voice as he said something that should have made us all incredibly happy. The guards are all gone, man. The prisoners were talking quietly between the cells and loudly between the floors through various whispers and shouts. But the most we could figure out was that something on the first floor had made them all quit and protest. Sure, must have been the crazies screaming like that during the night, right? Except none of us could get any word from the bottom floor. It was dead silent down there. The guys in the second called out for hours. Someone was down there, they said, because they could hear shuffling footsteps walking around at random every so often, but whoever it was never said a single word. That was the first time Dante mentioned the crazy stories from the first floor. He muttered that he hoped none of that was true, but when I asked about it, he just shook his head. Nothing, man. None of it ever made sense. We were a little worried as the day wore on, and no one came to let us out for breakfast, and no one came to let us out for lunch. The time we usually got to spend outside in the yard came and went, and people began getting restless. In the cell do I left, Dante's friend, Will, began telling guys to pass the word that we should all calm down and start sharing any food we had to hold away. I remember asking Dante, is it really that bad? Well, they've denied meals and yard time for a day or two before, he told me. But the other two guys in our cells didn't look convinced. One of them said, but not like this. They made damn sure we knew what we did. They never just up and left. Someone handed us pieces of crusty old bread through the bars. It was much appreciated. The new guards didn't show up for work for another full day. We got plenty of yard time that day from these new guys, but they seemed more confused than us. We all watched from a distance as Will asked a guard about what had happened. The guard shrugged. I don't know. GCG was paying a premium for fast hires, so I signed up. What about the prisoners on the first floor, Will asked. We could still hear them shuffling around down there. We looked on the way out to the yard, but we couldn't see anybody. Huh? The guard frowned. Nobody in there. They all got transferred. Transferred? The hell's that mean? means D.O.C.R. took him back, returned to state custody since the company couldn't handle him. Well, that made sense. If the floor had been full of nut jobs, then North Dakota's first local private prison company hardly had the experience to handle them. But these new guys didn't even have the skills to handle us. There were half as many guards as before, and they didn't know the routines or who the dangerous ones were among us. As a result, they were distant, scared, and forceful. All except one guy, Kellen. Kellen wasn't the first guard to treat us like human beings, but by then he was the only one around. He traded jokes while in the yard, never hit us, and looked us in the eyes when he talked. He went and found some paperwork to confirm the crazies had actually been transferred. 
But it took three months to get that info out of GCG. By the time he told us he'd heard back, we'd sort of forgotten the whole thing. Two nights later, maybe two hours past lights out, the guys on the second floor began screaming. Dante leapt up and fell on one of our cellmates by accident before shouting, Shit! Shit! Must be a fire! And the guys in our row began banging on the bars and shouting for the guards, but the uniforms charged past and headed downstairs without talking to us. We could hear them shouting orders down below and then yelling in confusion. The prisoners' screams were clear coming from the second, and it sounded like they were terrified of something in particular and wanted help. The sounds of gates being slammed and people running reached us after about ten minutes shouting, and then it was silent, and we sat in the dark waiting and listening until morning. When the new shifts came in, they were surprised and confused, and Kellen came by to ask us what had happened. We told him what we knew, but he'd shown up and found... Open gates and an empty second floor. There was no indication what had happened, but he promised to check with corporate and figure out if the absent prisoners had all been rapidly transferred again. Dante gripped the bars and made sure Kellen was looking at him. Please find out who the hell is walking around there at night. Kellen looked at that. I mean, I'm day shift, so I don't know what I can do, but... What do you mean? The prisoners are gone, Dante told him fiercely but quietly. But the guys on the third floor said they still hear someone, maybe two or three someones, shuffling their feet every hour or so till morning. I guess I could go look right now. Dante reached for the bars and grabbed his uniform, something which usually got us a beating. Hear me. Do not go in there by yourself. Stay in the stairwell unless someone's with you. Kellen nodded fearfully. It looked like he finally understood how spooked we were. He waved another guard off and Dante let go. But nothing more came of it for a whole season. The night shift had quit and more guards got hired at an even higher pay. Kellen and another uniform scooped out the first two floors, but they found nothing. Dante thought it was because they were looking during the day, but he wasn't about to ask our only friend to risk himself. It was maybe three months later. Yeah, I was halfway through my sentence, and I had taken up drawing, so I had a pen and paper, when we woke up in the middle of the night to everyone on the third floor screaming in absolute panic. This time, we were less scared during the event itself. Will offered a guard racing past, 500 bucks from his commissary account if the man would come back and tell them what was going on. Dante listened intently, trying to hear individual screams from the third floor over everyone else's shouting and confusion. I wrote down any words he thought he heard. What I wrote down? Jesus Christ! Killing him! God! Let us out! Coming this way! We weren't as scared when it was happening because we'd lived through it twice before. But this time, the long-term fear was much deeper. Now we knew for sure what was going to happen again. And any prisoners that had the means began lawyering up and doing everything they could 
to transfer to other prisons, even if it meant worse conditions. The problem was the North Dakota prison system was already overflown, which was the whole reason GCG got started in the first place. So every guy that got out meant it was that much harder for the rest of us. Both of our cellmates transferred, giving us motor space, so that was nice. But it was small consolation. Apparently word had started to spread outside. And GCG's solution, instead of paying the guards even more, was to stop having the night shift at all, except for just one poor guy. Kellen was a bit miffed he hadn't gotten a raise out of the whole thing, but he was starting to believe us that something was going on. By then, he'd been around a while and he knew we weren't bullshitters. Too many other prisoners had told him they'd heard someone walking around the first, second, and third floors at random during the night. It was just a few steps, sometimes as many as twenty, but it only happened every so often, and only once it had been long enough that you'd thought it had stopped for good. One guy on the fourth floor said he heard a full run from one end of the third floor hallway to the other, clear enough that he'd expected the guard to come charging up the stairwell, but nobody had appeared. He slid his wrists and got transferred out on a medical leave the next day, so we took him serious. All that was enough to get Kellen to start doing some research on the outside. He came to us in the seventh month of my sentence with a pale face. Beside us at the bars, Will asked, What's the word? Kellen seemed grim. A lot of bullshit out there. But this place is mentioned a lot. It's been closed before, but I keep getting stonewalled when I ask for the historical documents. Thing is, I don't think the prison itself is the problem. Get this. He pulled out a notepad for reference. Two Canadian priests, Fathers Norbert Provencher and Severe Dumoulin, visited Pembina in 1818, before it was even an official township. That was when the Hudson Bay Company was big around these parts. That's how long ago it was. Pembina was the biggest town in North Dakota then, so the trading post was full, and the priests chose to sleep outside by where the Pembina River meets the Red River. The folktale has it that a vision of a rotting woman came in the night and stole Provencher's life. Two men bartered with her to split the remaining life between them, consigning both to live only 35 more years instead of 70 Severe had left. Severe got an extra month and 20 days as a gift from his friend for a sacrifice. It paused as if we might guess the obvious outcome. They both died 35 years later. I knew Pembina Prison had a horrible problem, but that didn't mean I had to believe everything. Let me guess. A month and twenty days apart? Kellen nodded. Dante snorted. It's true, dude, Kellen insisted. The dates of death are right there on Wikipedia, but get this. Thirty-five years after 1818 made their death year 1853 the year this prison was built. 
and the place they camped that night by the meeting of the rivers. I didn't know what it meant, but I was beginning to feel very uneasy. It's right here, isn't it? He was dead serious. I think there's some shit here, ancient shit. I asked a guy I know, he's got Chippewa relatives, over at Turtle Mountain. They know the history of the Red River better than anyone else. He said his uncle told him to never sleep at the meeting of the Red River and the Pambana River. He said something lives there under the ground and awakens with the changing of the seasons. We were silent for a beat after that. It was folktale nonsense, but it was as good a theory as any. Whatever it was, it was going to come back, and it wasn't friendly. We all talked to Kellen for another few minutes, but Dante was silent. After he was gone, I asked him, what's wrong? He sat on one of the now unused bunks and told me, I got another five years in here, and I ain't got no money for a lawyer. Your sentence will be up before it reaches us, and I'll be here alone. Will it? There was no way to be sure. I'll be back in two months for the fourth floor, and then three months after that for us. I could get out a week before or a day too late. It doesn't seem to be exact. He just looked at the floor. What I mean is, I do hope you get out before it comes. Oh. I wasn't sure what else to say after that, so I just sat in my corner, like I always did. It wasn't too much after that that we heard GCG was going under. The mad rush of transfers had pissed off the state and lost the company a vital contract for a second location, and investors had pulled out or something. The number of guards was cut and slashed, and Kellen took a pay hit to stay on as the only guy on the day shift. There's only two prisoners left on the fourth floor. He told the 20 of us remaining, as the general week we expected it to happen approached. I feel like I should stay late just to see what the hell's going on down there. But the former guards I asked about it are all terrified as hell and refused to talk. Some got violent just because I asked. It's cool, Will told him. You got a kid at home. Don't be here for it. The 20 of us left on the fifth floor, sat in our cells once night fell, praying and listening. On Monday night, nothing happened. The two guys down below occasionally shouted up to us that everything was clear. On Tuesday night, nothing happened. The strain was growing, though, and we could hear sometimes, well, hear them breathing rapidly down there. I could only imagine the adrenaline rushing through them every minute until dawn. On Wednesday night, nothing happened. Yet something had changed in the air. The prison was much quieter now than 2,000 men and had become 22, and I thought I could feel a subtle sort of heartbeat in the air, pounding against reality like it was a thin sheet of paper. It's just your imagination. Dante whispered. None of us were willing to speak louder than that. On Thursday night, the heartbeat became a feeling of footsteps approaching from a great distance. Guys! Will shouted from his cell. You good down there? Still here, one responded from down below. But I can feel it. It's at the door. It's knocking. 
the hell's that supposed to mean? But the man below did not respond. Friday night. That was the night it would happen. All day, the two guys on fourth pulled and clanged on their bars, begging to be let out. Kellen was torn. After two hours of listening to that pleading, he came up with an idea and transferred both of them up to our floor. If nobody's on four, he said happily, then we'll all be safe, right? Out loud, we agreed, but we were kidding ourselves. When the night guard showed up, he freaked and took the two men back down. He said out loud what we were all thinking. If nobody's on four, then it'll just come right to five and get us all. What the hell was Kellen thinking? We had to listen to hours of sobbing that evening. It was the hardest trial of my life. I wanted to call out to the night guard... I wanted to ask him to get those men out of there. But if I did, I knew whatever was coming would find all of us instead. The moment it happened was like a cold hand on my shoulder. What's going on down there? Dante shouted. The man, who was not sobbing, called back. It's, it's changing. Will demanded. What's happening? Tell us. It's red. Red? It's red. What's red? Will yelled insistently. God damn it, what's red? We stared down the hallway at the guard, the night guard, who stood listening with fear. The screaming began a few seconds later, this time only one floor below. We could clearly hear every word. The sobbing prisoner shrieked. There! It's there! The man who'd been communicating with us began incoherently. "'raging with fear against his bars. "'Then, strangely, he stopped. "'The twenty of us clung to our bars, unable to help, unable to flee. "'Many of us cried, but we were otherwise silent, "'for to yell would be to drown out the last words of the men below. "'But they were eerily quiet for nearly two hours. "'We waited in strained silence as random footsteps traversed the fourth floor every so often.' What was happening? For the first time, the victims of whatever was going on down below had chosen to be quiet instead of yelling for help. Why would that make things different? At long last, the sobbing man broke the silence. Oh, my God. It's coming your way. Shut up. It'll see you. Distracted. Hit your bars. The sound of clanging echoed up the stairwell. The sobbing man said with terror, It knows! It knows! Jesus Christ, do something! We were no longer silent. We echoed that sentiment loudly and repeatedly to the guard. Do something! He just stood there, literally quaking in his boots. Will screamed at him, Snap out of it! The other guards and prisoners got away. You can too. Whatever it is, it won't follow you if you let them out and leave. I shouted, They're going to die down there! Dante threw his shoe, and the impact finally snapped the man out of his terror. The guard ran to the stairwell and descended. The first thing we heard him say was a taken aback. Mary, mother of Christ! The sobbing man again. Over here! For God's sakes, let us out! The other prisoner wasn't talking for some reason. We could hear his terror gasping, 
but that too went quiet. Then we heard a buzzer, and all the gates on four slammed loudly open. The sounds of panting, running, and someone dragging something followed. The prison went silent. Just like that, we were alone again. The formerly crowded prison now felt terrifyingly large and empty, with only 20 of us and no guards. That night, the unmistakable sound of footsteps echoed from down below. I counted time as best I could. Forty minutes. Then someone took three steps out of his cell and into the hallway. An hour and six minutes. Someone ran ten steps along the hallway and stopped abruptly. Twenty-eight minutes. The footsteps approached the stairwell, but then turned into a cell and went silent. Thing was, whoever it was sounded barefoot, and the starting and stopping locations did not match. Where they ended was often nowhere near where they began again later. By the time dawn came, we were scared into motionless, terrified silence, and it took Helen's arrival for us to begin stirring again. With GCG in bankruptcy court, we no longer had a night guard at all. If it came for us, there'd be nobody to let us out of ourselves, like everyone else. We hardly talked. We hardly ate. Each passing day was a grain of sand falling through an hourglass marking our executions. Our fellows began confessing to crimes they hadn't even committed just to get transferred to Supermax out of state, the only option left. Well, that and suicide attempts. One by one, Kellen escorted or dragged out guys out of our floor. Twenty became fifteen, then ten. Then it was just me and Dante, with Will still in the cell to our left. The three of us and Kellen... Four men waiting for doom. We sat playing card games in the weeks leading up to it. It would be one full year for me in that place, but I could swear I'd spent a lifetime in that cell. I couldn't think, couldn't remember life before, couldn't imagine surviving after. Every day I prayed for a transfer to come in, but North Dakota got sick of our shit and the judges had stopped hearing cases from Pembina Prison. They didn't know there were only three of us left. Nobody knew. We contacted the media. We phoned the governor's office. We made a ruckus. That was worse than nobody knowing. It turned out nobody cared. Two, there was nobody higher up at GCG following the situation, and Kellen couldn't get anybody on the phone. Payroll, meaning just his paycheck, was being handled by a third-party disbursement company, that couldn't answer questions about ongoing proceedings. The week approached. On Monday night, nothing happened. We were like statues in our cells, alone, waiting for a sign of the executioner's approach. When dawn came, we sighed and began moving again. Dante asked, You get out Friday? I nodded. If things went like before, I'd be released the day of. As long as I left before sundown, I'd be all right. On Tuesday night, nothing happened. Two for two. Just one more, just one more day. I sat through that darkness until... No. The feeling of the prison had changed around us. A subtle heartbeat seemed to pulse 
against our faces and ears and eyes. It had come a day earlier in the week than the last time. That morning, Will patted my arm as we both leaned out the bars. Sorry, man. Dante just shook his head angrily. I wasn't going to get out in time. On Wednesday night, the heartbeat became the sound of footsteps approaching from some unfathomable distance. I think I stood at the bars of our cell that entire day, fingers wrapped around the metal with force to match the tension in the air and in our minds. This couldn't happen. This wouldn't happen. My lawyer would walk in and tell me he'd gotten the judge's unfair addition of an extra day removed. One day. One goddamn day. Even if I'd spent the whole year in this prison, one day still meant life or death. Let me out. Let me the hell out, for God's sake. But nobody cared, and nobody would listen. I'd like to tell you that Kellen stayed late that night. I'd like to tell you that when the entire floor began to glow red, the hallway, the cells, the stone itself, as whatever ungodly abomination, in the earth began to wake up upon the changing of the season, as distant footsteps became a traveler at the door of our minds, I'd like to tell you that Kellen was there and hit the button and opened the gates and let us all out. I'd like to tell you that I didn't see anything and that I'm not permanently a broken man. I didn't claw at the walls of my cell as it approached slowly, moving a few steps every 20 to 70 minutes. I'd like to tell you that all three of us were able to run away and escape that horror upon reality with its rotting hands and blind eyes radiating crimson light as it searched for us at random. But I can't give you a satisfying end to this story. The disbursement company fired Kellen and changed the locks in the property. According to their paperwork, all the prisoners had been moved, and they thought he'd been getting paid for guarding an empty prison. They left us in there for eleven days, before the error was found, which meant eleven nights with that thing. For eleven days we starved. For eleven nights we sat absolutely still, not daring to move or breathe or even look left or right. It knew where we were, generally. It stood right outside our cell for hours, and sometimes walked right through the bars and grasped at the beds around us, daring us to make even the slightest motion. When you've spent six hours staring into the blind crimson eyes of a rotting demon, unable to blink your eyes for fear it will hear the air your lashes move, when you've seen what it's seen, the worlds it's walked, reflected in hellish red, you'll understand. No one cares. I'd like to tell you that Kellen actually existed. I'd like to tell you we had a friend among the guards and that it wasn't all that bad. I'd like to tell you I wasn't traumatized by the hell I went through being left to rot and left to die as nothing more than a number on some corporation's books. But no one cares.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed An Empty Prison by author Matt Demersky as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you heard, stay tuned because up next I've got more terrifying tales from Mr. Demersky. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to encourage anyone interested in Matt's work to visit him at his official website, mattdemersky.com, where you'll find links to his books for sale, his social media, and ways to contact him for more information. Or check him out on amazon.com, where you'll find a selection of his collection of short stories as well as his longer works. Pick up a copy or two. You won't be disappointed. I know I wasn't. Matt's website, once again, is Matt, spelled M-A-T-T, Demersky, spelled D-Y-M-E-R-S-K-I, dot com. Thanks again for your support of tonight's featured author and of indie horror. And don't forget to let Matt know that Otis sent you. It means a lot to me. Up next, we've got a second terrifying selection from Matt's extensive archive of sinister stories. In it, we'll get a day pass from our stay at Pembina Prison and venture into another trap of sorts, a casino. And not just any gambling hall, but one with an in-house currency of a very unusual nature. And where, if you're not careful... You can lose everything. And I do mean everything. <laughs> Without further ado, I present to you Blue Dollars. I don't have a gambling problem. That's the first thing I want known. It's also what they all say, right? No, I'm not addicted to gambling. But I have a codependency issue with someone who is. I'm not the coolest guy in the block, and I'm not particularly good at anything. Ted is, though, and we've been best friends since we were four. He's the one who always pushes forward blindly into adventures. And I guess I'm the one who always gets him back out when things go sideways. There's always been an element of luck to our continued physical and financial survival, but never more than now. We'd flown out to Napa Valley for a friend's wedding and already ditched the reception party at around 11. I could hardly afford to do anything. I'd only been able to come because 
Ted had bought me a ticket. Because I was only there on his generosity, I followed him to the quiet and rather empty bars that sparsely dotted the area. It was a beautiful country, filled with vineyards and history, but it was not a party town. This frustrated Ted, of course, who began plying locals with drinks in order to interrogate them about local hotspots. Somebody has to be having fun in this town, he would say with a grin. One bitter old man finally spoke up at the third empty bar we invaded. There's a casino, if you really need it that bad. We looked at our phones, but Google Maps showed nothing. It won't be on any map, the old man said, scowling at us. Just go south from here, you'll find it. Behind our informant, I saw an unhappy look on the bartender's face. That should have tipped me off, but Ted was already thanking the old man and heading for the door. I followed quickly, ignoring the uneasy feeling in the pit of my stomach. Driving through the rolling hills at night was a claustrophobic and confusing experience. Our phone signal dropped, and we found ourselves driving purely by instinct. West, south, east? It was impossible to know for sure. We stuck to the sole road until it turned to dirt underneath the wheels. That's when I almost called the whole thing off. But Ted pulled up outside a graveyard and pointed, Look, cars! He was right. Two dozen cars were parked on the grass next to an unassuming old church that had all its windows boarded up. He'd only caught the sight across the graveyard and through the trees because he'd been looking so intently. Triumphant, he said, that's a hidden party if I've ever seen one, and carefully drove the car between the headstones to reach the improvised parking area. I climbed out with trepidation. Even up close, the century-old church looked dilapidated, dark, abandoned. Come on, this is too much. Dad wasn't having it. He ran right up and pushed open the front door, and bright light and the sound of electronic games burst forth. In a moment, he was gone, and I was left to step across the high grass alone. The fact there was actually a hidden casino here lifted my spirits a little. Maybe it was all just a gimmick to encourage people to drink and gamble more. Funny, it still sounded quiet and looked dark until the moment I cracked the door open. The light and noise swallowed me, and I blinked repeatedly until my eyes and ears adjusted. I was almost disappointed to find that the expansive place within was exactly the same as any of the casinos Ted had made us visit in Vegas last year. Vaguely old-timey red and gold carpets ran lush under warm lighting, and drunk businessmen and their accompanying younger dates played at scattered locations throughout. An old lady glared at me, defending her slot machine, and pulled the lever only after I moved past. Finally relaxing, I shrugged. Whatever. We weren't going to be robbed or stabbed here. This was still Napa Valley, after all. In fact, they were rather accommodating. A wonderfully attractive waitress came by, said hello to me, and offered me a free drink on the house. 
I took it with bashful surprise. Tad was already moving about the place to scout the best games and tables. I caught up to him, drink in hand, and he settled near a roulette table. Let's just watch it for a bit, he said quietly. Make sure everything's on the level. Hidden in a church like this, I doubt they stick to gaming commission codes. That made sense. We watched and listened for a bit, enjoying the taste of free drinks and the sight of pretty girls, as middle-aged businessmen won and lost with varying degrees of frequency. One pepper-haired Asian suit went on a lucky street, getting the crowd all riled up, himself included. While onlookers shrieked with excitement, he bet it all. He lost. Huh. Seems legit, Ted told me. I'm going to head over to the blackjack tables for a minute. And he moved off to begin playing. That was everything I had, the Asian businessman said, dismayed. The two girls that had been clinging to his arms disengaged and began to look disinterested. Hurriedly, he made a motion to a casino manager, and the well-dressed but subtly subservient facilitator brought him a small suitcase. It clicked open with the rush of air, and I watched as the unlucky gambler pulled out bundled stacks of blue-dollar bills. That was odd. There were American dollars, same faces, designs, and everything, just dark blue instead of green. Was this fake money? Some sort of in-house system? Come to think of it, I saw no chips, just money. If these were the replacement for chips, why all the care to make them so similar to real dollars? The gambler in question did not have the same qualms. He gladly placed the stacks on the table. The crowd grew energized again, and the girls began showing him attention once more. Feeling a little strange, I moved off, seeking Ted. I found him at the blackjack table as he won a hand. Grinning, he pumped a fist. I like this place. Come on, play. I don't have any money for this. I told him, sheepish. Here's some. He handed me a hundred-dollar bill. I took it and sat, but secretly stashed the hundred and bowled the last of my own cash reserves from my wallet. As I always did, I would return his money back to him when he wasn't looking. He never made me feel bad about it, and he had a high-paying sales job, but I just couldn't stomach leeching off of someone else like that. We played a few hands while still enjoying free drinks. I drank slower to remain sober-ish, but Ted guzzled away, having the time of his life. He lost quite a few hands, but played well, and actually started accumulating more money than he'd come in with. I, in contrast, lost all my meager cash rather quickly. Upon the loss of my last dollar, a suited man with slicked-back hair and a politician's grin approached and leaned down between us, an arm on the back edge of each of our chairs. He spoke with a thick Middle Eastern accent, although his skin was pale enough that it was uncertain what region he was from. Gentlemen, welcome. I don't think I've seen you grace our establishment before. I am Malcolm. Nice to meet you, Ted said. This place is great. Love the free drinks. Yes, Malcolm said with a widening grin. A small expense in the face, 
of casino profits. I am not a greedy man. Oh, so you're the owner, I ask, not wanting to be left out. Yes, but think of me as your friend. He finally moved back and stood upright. His gaze shifted to me. I see you are out of money. Would you like to keep playing? He motioned the manager over, and a briefcase was opened before me, complete with the stack of blue-dollar bills I'd seen before. I glanced over awkwardly. Ted was suspicious, but open to the idea. What are these? They represent debt, Malcolm said graciously. Mm, interesting. Ted looked at me. You should do it, Ryan. But that was not my name. I think I'm all right, Jason, I replied. What did he have in mind? I imagined he was planning to use these blue dollars, if needed, and then slip out. They couldn't make us pay back a debt if they had no idea who we were. Accepting my refusal, Malcolm ordered the suitcase closed and withdrew. Good luck, gentlemen. I was left with a chill and a shiver. From then on... I could only sit and watch as Ted gambled, talked up girls, and had a good time. The free drinks were no longer offered to me, and, indeed, none of the patrons or employees would so much as look at me. I should have noticed, but again, my life was often lonely. I simply accepted it. We moved from game to game, eventually ending up back at Roulette, and Ted soon found himself in a situation we had witnessed earlier. Energized crowd, streak of lucky wins, and potential for a huge payoff. Despite my whispered warnings, he bet everything he had. The ball bounced, the numbers were called, and I sighed. He lost. Malcolm returned with a grin I imagined to be rather hungry, and the suitcase was offered to Ted. Someone in the crowd squeezed my forearm in warning. But by the time I looked, it was impossible to tell who'd done it. Don't. Let's go home. Come on, Ryan, he shouted back. I could tell he still intended to rip off the establishment. Let's have some fun. Reaching down, he eagerly pulled out two armfuls of blue dollar stacks, most of which he pawned off on me. I held them as he bet blue money on another roll. It might have been my imagination, but the stacks felt suddenly warm. He won, thankfully, but that quickly led to more bets, and I watched with a sinking feeling as my blue load of dollars shrank. The eyes of the crowd were upon us very intently now, and Malcolm seemed to be staring solely at Ted, grinning only when Ted looked his way. Well, we should go, I said again. Ted ignored me. There were a hundred opportunities to leave, but Ted took none of them. At long last, his final blue dollar went to the house. At that point, he whispered his intent to me, and I took off running after him a heartbeat later. I made it to the door and burst into the cold night air, but Ted remained just within. What are you doing? I shouted to him. Get out here! seemed horrified. He stared down at his feet as they towed the red and gold carpet edge. I can't. I can't leave. Malcolm approached calmly behind Ted, flanked by two suited managers. 
Sensing something was wrong, I leapt forward and kept the church door from closing, but I made sure it remained just outside. Malcolm, what the hell is this? The grinning man gave a small laugh. I told you that my money was a form of debt. People like your friend here never listen. They think that they can cheat the house. Perhaps that would be possible if the house, in this case, were not a demon. But it is. I am. and He is now indebted. I stared up at him, trembling. But it seemed that I was not in direct danger. The next question was obvious. What does he owe? The same thing that is always owed. Malcolm told me, his grin widening along his cheeks in a starkly inhuman manner. Each blue dollar represented a portion of his soul. If even one remained, there was a chance he might win it all back, and more. Thus, I would not technically own him. But not even one blue dollar left. He has no chance of escape. He is mine. Looking past him, I saw the patrons and the employees watching us. I understood. They were all his. The Asian businessman had seen gambling, had been one of us, free, but no longer. I looked back to Malcolm, thinking about his explanation of chance. So you operate by rules, then? Of course. I am a demon, rule-bound by nature. This type of thing must be enacted fairly. Ted still struggled with the invisible threshold, his eyes on me, his expression desperate. How do I get him out? I asked, my pulse racing. If the roles had been reversed, I was sure Ted would have had a plan, but I had no idea what to do. Malcolm laughed softly for a full five seconds before answering. There is nothing you can do except leave. To buy back even a single blue bill, he must have money. He has no money. Therefore, he cannot buy back the single blue bill required. Believe me when I tell you that this is not my establishment's, how do you Americans say, first rodeo. Ted began screaming, but a gesture from Malcolm silenced him. Ted continued moving and opening his mouth, certainly, but no noise came out. Heart thudding in my chest hard enough that I feared I might pass out. I reached into my back pocket and slipped out the hundred-dollar bill. How many of his blue dollars will this get me? It must be his money, not yours, Malcolm replied, his expression uncertain for the first time since I'd seen him. It is his, I shouted. He gave it to me to hold. The manager whispered in Malcolm's ear, and a frustrated sigh followed. At current exchange rates, that hundred will purchase twenty-one of his blue bills. The other manager opened the suitcase, showing twenty-one loose bills. I scooped them up before dropping the hundred in their place. Without warning, Ted's screams became audible again, and he fell forward into the graveyard with me. Grabbing him by instinct, I kept him from falling completely down, and Malcolm stood staring at us with anger. Now that his careful veneer was fading, I could see ghastly undertones in his skin, 
and the pale outlines of numerous gnarled horns on his head, and on the heads of the managers beside him. Ted accepted the twenty-one blue dollars from me and stood, slowly recovering his wits and breath. Jesus, they had me. He gripped my shoulder. You got me out. You got me out. You always do. Thank you, thank you. I nodded and began backing away from that unhallowed place. There was no way we could have known. Care to make another wager? The demon at the church door asked. Now that you know what we are, there are greater winnings available. How would you care for immortality? Perhaps the power of flight or precognition? We can gift you these things, assuming you win enough. Ted stopped following me and turned to look back at Malcolm's charred face. A terrible sinking feeling overcame me. Don't. Imagine how much we could win if we could see the future. Ted said, still frozen in place. We'd be set for life. He's lying, I shouted. I cannot lie. Malcolm replied with amusement. You know this. I'll just bet 20. Ted called back. I'll still have the one, so I'll still be free. I kept screaming, but Ted staggered toward the open door and pushed within. Fully gruesome now, Malcolm gave me a maggot-filled smile, and the door shut on its own accord. Opening and closing the rotted wood a few times, I discovered nothing but a musty abandoned church within. I could also now see that the cars parked outside were rusted and ancient, with models ranging from modern to classic. Those that had come here over the last fifty years had never left. Surely I wasn't the first to turn down the blue soul money. How had I never heard of the old man at the bar, his bitterness? He'd lost somebody here to this place, to Malcolm, and Ted had been an obviously doomed soul from the start. Telling him had simply sped up the inevitable. I began the long walk home. I was alone now, but that was no longer my biggest fear. I'd done my part. I'd pulled a lucky last-minute move and saved Ted from a demon uniquely suited to his flaws. But he'd been chosen to go back anyway. There's nothing I could do but go home alone and wonder when my own particular brand of demon would fall across my path. On that day, too, I would be lost. Thus was born Malcolm's demonic confidence. Even with friends to offer one last chance at escape, we are all human. We are each our own doom. I hope you enjoyed Blue Dollars by tonight's feature author, Matt Demersky, as performed by yours truly. As a reminder, all of tonight's tales were provided to us courtesy of our featured author. And as a reminder, Matt has a number of novellas and short story collections available now on Amazon.com. And you can show your support by picking up a copy of one or more of the books today. You won't be sorry you did. 
or visit mattdemersky.com where you can get in touch and drop him a line, connect on social media, or simply get more information about Matt and his decade-long career as a horror and sci-fi author. Don't forget to let them know that Otis sent you. Thanks once again for your support of tonight's featured author and of indie horror. As for me, I would like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. 
Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>